everyone. It's me, Dr. Z, with... JB, here for another uh, great session and uh, with a great guest today here, Dr. Z. Yes, this I am so, so happy to have Tina Swithin with us. Um, for those of you who don't know who she is, um, other than being absolutely amazing, um, she is the founder of One Mom's Battle, um, and we will get into uh, what that is. But Tina is very big in helping educate um, the family court system and all those that are involved in the family court system, lawyers, judges, um, advocates, you know, even down to, um, you know, the co-parenting and educating them on the impact of divorcing somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, particularly post-separation abuse. Um, because for those of you that have experienced that or are going through that, you know that the courtroom is nothing more than a big stage for a performance. So um, Tina does a very good job of not only training people to teach others, but also uh, just to educate the public and educate people that are going through it uh, because they're really, other than, you know, Tina, there really isn't anyone that gets to the kind of the, the crux of it and the, to show that it's such a huge problem in the family court system. Um, so Tina, thank you for everything you do. Um, and the advocacy that, that you do. Um, so yeah, so we're going to get started because I know people probably are so excited to hear this. Um, but before we start, it is your 11-year anniversary of One Mom's Battle. So congratulations. Amazing. Congratulations. Such an awesome <laughs> accomplishment. Thank you um, so much. So yeah, yeah, awesome. It's um it's helped so many people, um, so thank you. And I know my followers and listeners are very appreciative. So my first question for you is, kind of generally speaking, how bad is it? It's really bad. It's, you know, when my journey actually started 13 years ago, I've been doing my blog for 11 of those 13, but I feel that it's even worse now than it was when I started. And, you know, it was just such an eye-opening experience. It defies logic. Um, you know, that child safety is secondary to parental rights. And we have a, we have a crisis on our hands in the family court system. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super interesting that you you make that distinction that parental rights are coming before children's rights. I don't think people realize that. And I think it's something that's so overlooked. Um, so when you, I'm just curious, when you bring that to people's attention, what's their response to that? Shocked. They look at us sideways, like we are speaking a different language. And I've really notice that over the past two years, because we started a campaign each November, we've basically claimed the month of November as Family Court Awareness Month. And so that's really given us a platform to go into this at a community level and talk to mayors and city council people and just everyday, you know, members of society. And just like when I first walked into the court system, um, not knowing anything about it, just naively believing that everybody's focus would be mm -hmm. what's in the child's best interest. And so when we're 
working to educate them that that's not what's happening and that, you know, children are being put into situations where they're being horrifically abused and no one's listening to their voices um, or the voices of the parent who's trying to protect them. You know, people can't grasp that that could really be happening in the United States. I mean, it's an international crisis, but it, it's a huge issue. And Tina, if is that part of what you say in what's getting worse? Is that like the, the main issue is the kind of the, the children's well-being? Is that part of, uh, of what is continuing to get worse in, in this world here? Yeah, I, I think what a huge part of the problem is, is that we have judicial officers and family court professionals who have no training in domestic violence. And that shocks people that a judge can take mm -hmm. a position on the bench with zero training. You know, we were just um, looking into in Tennessee, they have a program where um, hairstylists, beauticians are trained in domestic to recognize yes. signs of a domestic violence. And wow. the fact that we yes. have hairstylists who have more training in domestic violence than we do judicial officers. And these are people who are making decisions about a child's life. And um, mm -hmm. it, so I do, I feel like it's getting worse. Um, the, the knowledge on abuse, you know, post-separation abuse, domestic violence, narcissistic abuse, as a society, we're finally talking about these things, um, thanks to work you're doing, thanks to so many others. And I'm grateful for that. But the reality is in the courtroom, they don't even have the training on the 101 version of domestic violence, That's let hard. alone these more complex issues. That's right. They and you had said this in the beginning that it's so narcissistic abuse, coercive abuse is not obvious, right? And so a lot of people and you said this you said this it's illogical. And I think that's the part that yeah. that when people tell their story, it is so unimaginable and unbelievable. But it is that bad. And I think that's a big component to it is that it almost makes the victim look like they're exaggerating. And then I think that's where that psychological aspect of, you know, well, something must be wrong with them. Right. Or, um, you know, right. they're so dramatic. And it, it 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 almost it's almost as if and I hear this and I know you I'm sure you hear this, too. There will be attorneys that will tell their clients, don't bring up the abuse. Ugh. Which is mind-blowing to me because yeah. there's children involved. And it, it, it's just, I think because it's so unimaginable, the stories and what goes on and how manipulative it is, that it's hard to, it's hard to believe. Um, but one of the things that Tina, that Tina has yeah. done in the past is um, calls out the people that don't understand um, what's going on in the in the court system. Um, and I'm going to let you talk about that for a little bit because it's brilliant and um, it's extremely helpful for people. Yeah, we've started a campaign and we're titling it Tell Us About. And we're featuring different family court professionals, whether it be judges, um, co-parenting therapies, minors counsel, which are attorneys for the children, also called GALs, 
And when one of them hits our radar as problematic, um, you know, we start to wonder, is this a one-time incident or are there lots of other people who have been affected by either, whether it's uh, collusion, corruption, or just somebody who's really uneducated on these dynamics? And so we're featuring them. We put their picture up. We ask for people to... Um, Great. The website for that is intheirbestinterest.com. And we ask for people, share your stories about this professional. And then what we're doing as that all feeds into a database, we go in and if we have 10 different people who have shared similar stories, we're going to reach out to all 10 of them and ask permission to connect to them. Because once we start connecting these dots, we have the ability to expose these people through the media or through filing reports with their governing boards or agencies, and it's going to be a way to tackle these issues because it's gone on for far too long. Yeah, I agree. And I just want to add that you are, I said how amazing I think you are, but you're also one of the bravest people um, that that I've encountered who has been kind of part of this community, unfortunately. Um, can you Can you tell us how you got into this? How did this become something that you became so passionate about? I very much consider myself to be the accidental author and advocate. Um, 11 years ago today, I actually looked, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, I looked at him and I, I had been in the family court system for two years. I left a women's shelter because I was afraid for my life and found I had to represent myself due to financial abuse. I was not able to afford an attorney. So here I am, never stepped foot in a courtroom in my life, and I'm having to navigate this court system that just defies logic. And out of sheer frustration, two years into my battle, I looked at Glenn and I said, I'm gonna start a blog. And by the end of the day, I purchased a domain name that represented how I was feeling in that moment. And it was one mom's battle because at the time we weren't talking about these issues. I couldn't find a single soul. And um, I felt like I was the only one. Um, about six months into writing my blog, I was, um, you could call it discovered by Christy Brinkley, who was also divorcing a narcissist at the time. Um, her ex-husband, Peter Cook, was diagnosed. He was considered to be an, a malignant narcissist. And that made a lot of, that had a lot of media attention. And she had mm -hmm. been on the Today Show. And she told people, that was Google horrible. the term divorcing a narcissist. He was Matt Lauer. I mean, now we know <laughs> why. That, that was that. Yeah, that that was such an uncomfortable interview. I remember. Oh my, oof. it was brutal. Yeah, and I never watched TV. I just happened to have TV on that day. I watched her interview. I watched her choke up and say, with tears in her eyes, and say, "Google the term divorcing a narcissist." And that night my blog hit 40,000 views. Prior wow. to that, I probably had about 40 a month. Yeah. <laughs> so, And that was my friends and family just following along. Yeah. And so it really put me and this topic um, into the spotlight. 
Well, that's incredible that that, you know, uh, she had the courage to go out and say that. And that's something I actually don't remember that interview vividly like you guys do. So I'm, I oh. definitely want to go back and look you, at you, that. You look on YouTube. It's, it's, it's so uncomfortable. Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine. And yeah. from that, you know, like I what what is that first step, I guess, from your journey on to how to get to a place where you feel a little bit comfortable about going to fight in the courtroom because I know it's incredibly hard to take that first step and it's almost like a a non-starter for most people that are that know what they're walking into so what is what helped you you know and what what was that first step that really made a positive impact on your life I think I was about two years into my court journey where it clicked for me that to the court system, these are just business transactions and these are just case numbers mm -hmm. and that it's, you know, they, that's how they do their job. You know, they, that's how they have to think about it um, or they choose to think about it. And so for me, it was two years into the journey where I started sitting in the courtroom and studying the system and watching other cases, it, mostly in an effort to make sense of it. I, I couldn't. I felt, you know, you start to question, am I the problem? Am I the person who has disordered right. thinking? Because my child, my children are being put into unsafe situations every single weekend. And when it's to the point where... I'm looking at their faces and trying to memorize every aspect of their face because I don't know if I'm going to see them again. This person is so unsafe that I truly worried, you know, if he would do something really, really terrifying to, to hurt my kids because he knew that was the number one way to hurt me. And because I mm -hmm. was feeling so defeated by the system, I decided to just put myself in that courtroom. And I remember the very first day going in the courtroom and the judge knew me so well because we were in there once a month. And he said, Swithin, what are you here for today? You're not on my calendar. And I said, Your Honor, I'm just here to observe. And I became a fixture wow. in the courtroom studying other yeah. cases that resembled mine um, because I didn't know what else to do. That's a, I mean, that is, that actually makes me feel uh, great about some advice that I would give to somebody that I know is, is starting to go through this right now. And I think that's an amazing thing to hear is just keep in front of the people that you know that are going to especially see your case a lot. And that's one way to garner favor on like, hey, you know, they're here learning procedure, or at least they're not going to annoy me with this now, or, you know, they're trying. And I think a lot of the times, that is, judges can get on your side pretty easily when they know you're putting in the work, and that's great advice and something I wouldn't even think about. So, mm -hmm. what um, what was the, yeah. the next steps for you and, after and, that, and, and kind of and, and being like, okay, we got this nailed down. <laughs> well, and and just to piggyback on that, you know, the reality of this system is the same case in front of five different judges, you're going to have five different outcomes. And so really learning your local system. And now so many courtrooms have moved online so you can watch from home. Half the time I have court mm -hmm. cases going on my laptop in the background as I'm working. Um, and so, you know, from there, I, you know, really 
became started seeing it the way the court did and and started feeling empowered and started connecting with other people because Christy Brinkley had reached out and we connected and she really helped to bolster and and give me a platform for what I was doing because she believed in what we were doing and and the messaging and so you know she is truly the reason that it, it one mom's battle exists today the way it does and and we became a resource and a network for people all over the world um it grew very organically but you know the more i understood the system the more i understood how to pre present my case um i didn't back down and i just i i took things differently, more strategically. And mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot about how to navigate this with a narcissist. You know, prior to understanding this dynamic, I didn't realize what a stage it was for him. I did. I was putting everything in front of the court. He would send me eight paragraphs and I would respond with 10 because I was trying to defend myself. Right. And so I wasn't choosing my battles wisely. I wasn't, you know, all of those things. What's being done to educate people in, in positions of power and people that are high up? What What's currently being done um, to educate them on this type of abuse um, and kind of how to identify it? And once they identify it, how it kind of plays out in their decision making? So in this past year, um, I, along with a, a handful of other advocates in family court reform and advocacy, formed something called the National Safe Parents Organization. It's nationalsafeparents.org. And we have brought together the top advocates in the country because we're all out there doing great work, but to come together under one umbrella and, and go in and raise awareness, um, start empowering survivors on how to, whether it's talk to the media, because we have a huge advantage right now. The media is finally listening. And we know mm -hmm. when the media is shining a spotlight on something, everybody is going to sit up a little bit straighter. So um, the National Family Violence Law Center, George, um, Joan Meyer and Danielle Pollack are pumping out amazing research. They co-authored or helped to author Caden's Law, which was passed at the federal mm -hmm. level this, this past year with VAWA. That is huge. It's the first time the federal government yeah, has ever recognized that we have a problem. And so now it's a matter of taking Caden's Law at the federal level and implementing it state by state. That's fantastic. And one of the things that uh, both of you had said, which I find very interesting in trying to, you know, navigate a lot of um, all of this, the information and, uh, you know, you get to that point where like, okay, it's, it's time to go and do this thing in a trial, in a courtroom. And both of you said, you know, uh, people with narcissistic personality disorder, this is their time to shine. And now they're going to do all the, all this confidence, you know, whatever showboating. Can you describe what that is mm. in the courtroom and how your emotions kind of are going during that process? Well, you know, when you're a victim of domestic violence and, and I had been with this person for nine years, so that's nine years of 
trauma and abuse and gaslighting. And so you leave these relationships and you're in such a fog, you know, because you're coming to the realization that you don't even know who you had been married to all these years. You fell in love with the facade. And so you don't even mm-hmm. have time to start healing from all of that. You know, it's deeper than right. a, a typical abusive relationship, which is hard enough in itself, but you've got all these other layers of this person's a fraud. And I've spent nine years with somebody, I don't know who they are. And then mm-hmm. you walk into the courtroom and you're in this fog and you have all of this trauma. And when you're dealing with a court system that is not trauma informed, does not even understand the basics of domestic violence, we end up looking like Dr. Z said, like part of the problem. And so Mm -hmm. then on the other hand, you have a narcissist who is, um, and I had the opportunity to talk to a diagnosed narcissist lately who said, you know, if I could walk into that courtroom, my goal is to get the judge to laugh, to get opposing counsel to laugh, and to kind of, because then when I do that, I know that you just sink down further and further and you're triggered because your own attorney is laughing at my jokes and I can now command wow. the courtroom. And yeah. it's chilling. What a great so, piece of advice. It yeah. is. And, and I, and I want to just highlight something that you said because I say this all the time and I get a lot of angry, I'll say, DMs and messages about this. Um, so I know I'm going to get it now so you can message John right yell at him at John Barchard um, on every platform but, no problem but you know n- narcissistic abuse is is uniquely different from other types of abusive relationships and that is so important to communicate to people because it is like you said it's so complicated it's so complex it's so multi-layered it is so detailed and specific and like the example you just gave um, you know, it's, it's, you wouldn't even conceive of that, but that's what they do. Um, and so it's very, very yeah. different, which is why, um, you know, I, I think just like you said, it, it almost seems like, you know, the, the person who's divorcing them is part of the issue. Right. Right. And that's so much of the work that I, help other people to understand is when you walk into that court system, we've had these light bulb moments as survivors. We know what we're up against and we're desperate to tell everyone else. But the reality is the court doesn't know either of you and you're both under a microscope. And while you know that you are the healthy one, it's going to take a while for the court to 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 understand that and so your presentation you know somebody needs to be it's difficult to tell somebody go into this strategically when you are in a state of trauma Mm -hmm. but presentation is absolutely critical can you really quickly can you explain because i i get a lot of message about this and i think that you'll explain it extremely well can you talk about why parental alienation is no longer something that is beneficial to talk about. Right. So I love dads. Dads are wonderful if they're good dads. I was raised by my dad. This is not a man bashing. Um, I'm not on a man bashing platform. I'm actually grateful I was raised by my dad. However, the parental alienation movement, first of all, it was 
started, the roots are from a man by the name of Richard Gardner, who was um, at a minimum pedophile friendly and really caused a tremendous amount of damage in the early 80s um, whenever mothers raised claims of sexual abuse. You know, he said they were hysterical. He So the roots of this movement started out very disturbing. They've now moved to, it's a, it's a father's rights agenda, and you can actually join many of the father's rights groups, and they're going to give play-by-play -play how to trump claims of abuse, trump claims of neglect, try to um, turn the tables, flip the script on the abuse victim, and to avoid any accountability for why the children are afraid of them because of the abuse or why the children have no bond with them because they are not capable of bonding with the child. And so for a victim of abuse, so many of us, I know from myself, I desperately wanted my ex-husband to have a bond with my kids. I begged him, spend time with them, all of that. By the time we got to court, this is a great example. He had no relationship with them. He was a stranger to them because he was never capable of that bond. And they were afraid of him. But in a courtroom, if a family court professional believes in this alienation pseudoscience um, that has never been peer-reviewed, there is no credible research to back up that there is truly this syndrome. Um, it is a very scary and uneven playing field because my ex, for example, would say the reason the kids are afraid of him is because I have set out and poisoned them. I have spoken poorly about that, you know, and so you're all of a sudden feeling like you're in the twilight zone going, no, this, I'm being gaslit, but not only by him, by institutional betrayal, by a system that is believing, you know, as soon as somebody plants this seed of alienation, um, it's almost impossible to dig up. It, it sprouts and it grows and it's a terrifying, not only the roots of it, but today's present day movement um, is the worst thing to happen to the court system. And I always say, I do not discount that narcissists and abusers will try to turn the children against the healthy parent. That is their goal. Oh, yeah. And sometimes they are successful, but I would never use that terminology to describe what's happening. That's um, incredible. The origin, especially of all the fathers slash men's rights groups, I had no idea, and that's important to note. It kind of actually makes me even more sick to realize that. So I can't realize what an important battle that would be. Um, and moreover, I guess that's why I was leading to my next question of, like, what is the origin of the struggle of this in the courtroom, and is that one of them? Is that one of the main pillars of why it is so incredibly hard, excuse me, to get um, a, a judge or anyone to understand what's actually going on and, and all that. Is that the, one of the main issues? Um, present day, it is. It seems to infiltrate the system more and more every year. Um, you know, it, it is a dark industry. They, there's alienation camps. People would not even believe that these things still exist to this day, but there are camps where 
if a mother, it's typically mothers, is for found guilty of alienating her child, they will take these children from their primary parent and send them off to a camp where they have 90 days or more of no contact with their primary caregiver and enforce bonds with somebody who has no bond with them or who they're afraid of. And then they're telling these kids, the abuse never happened. Your mom made it all up. And so it's really dark and really deep but and so that is one of the the issues um number two we have you know here in california we just watched um legislation trying to be passed and one of the things that came up the judicial council here in california is trying to shut down the part of the bill they didn't want is more training they have here in California, there is a, um, it's a suggested like five to 10 hours of domestic violence training for judges, but it's not required. And they're trying to shut down any additional training to be put in place. And that just, you, you know, you would not go to a knee surgeon and have them perform brain surgery. Why would you take a, a judge from criminal court, shove them into family law where they're responsible for kids' lives and kids are being murdered in these situations mm -hmm. because it's the ultimate way to hurt the, the healthy parent. So, you know, when I say crisis, I mean, I feel like that's, um, it doesn't even accurately describe it. I don't know what the word is. Yeah. I don't think there is one. I really don't. I don't think, no, I don't think there is one. Parental rights are given so much weight and so much of this abuse that's happening is difficult to prove. You know, it's so insidious. It's, um, right. you know, the kids coming home telling these things. Well, that's hearsay and that can't be admitted into court. And so it becomes a he said, she said situation or she said, she said, whatever the pronouns are that are appropriate. Um, you know, and so very little can be actually put in as evidence. And then they have such an emphasis on 50-50 custody. We're splitting children up and treating mm -hmm. them like they are property or retirement accounts instead of human lives. And, you know, even under the best of circumstances, with two healthy parents, 50-50 custody is very difficult for children. They don't ever have a stable home base. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's terrifying too. Like, what do you do in that situation if you are terrified of sending mm -hmm. your children to that other 50% of the month, the week, whatever the court says you're doing? Like, what is, what would you say to somebody who has to continuously do that? You know, your your hand, for me, my hands were tied by a broken system. That was my truth. And I had to go to sleep every single night and put my head on the pillow knowing that I had done everything in my power that day to protect my kids because I knew at some point I'm going to have to look them in the eyes when they're grown and tell them that I did everything I could and that so much of this was beyond my control. And so even if that was, you know, documenting something in a day, but there were times that I was so afraid for my children's physical safety that I had to hire PIs to follow my ex-husband during his parenting time just to give me updates 
that my kids were okay, you know, hour by hour, because I knew what a bad mental state he was in. And when you're dealing with a narcissist or a toxic individual who's mentally unhealthy, you, you know, and especially they're going rock bottom or they're backed into a corner legally, it becomes really scary and really dangerous. And we hear the stories in the news all the time. Um, so for mm -hmm. me, it was feeling like I was doing something every day to protect my kids um, within this broken system. Is that something you would recommend as well, is a private investigator? I mean, I know they're usually typically not the most inexpensive things in the world, but I mean, is it is that one, obviously in your situation, it was an absolute necessity, I think for peace of mind, but for two, I mean, is that a good way to break through in into the court system into your trial into your case it can be you know there it, it has to be warranted you don't want to hire a pi to follow someone and then you look like you're stalking them you know there has to be mm -hmm. justification for it in my case it was actually one of the final nails in his family court coffin was that he you know in our case i finally was successful in getting a no alcohol clause put in i found out he had taken my kids to a restaurant and drank with them and then drove afterwards so i had my pi go in pull the surveillance tape pull the receipts prove because otherwise it's my word against his and no one's going to listen to my kids but when they're continuously being put in these unsafe situations for me, a, a private investigator ended up being very helpful. And because I didn't have attorney fees, you know, I told the private investigator, I'll probably be sending you checks to pay my bill till I'm 80. And that's okay, because all I care about right now is that peace of mind that my kids are okay. And so, you know, it can be very helpful, but so many of these things happen behind closed doors and, and a PI can't help you in those situations. It's also deliberate. I mean, that's that's why this is so complicated because it it the, the abuse behind closed doors is is deliberate, right? And so you know, people say, oh, well, they have difficulty controlling their anger. They have difficult. No, they don't. They're very selective, right, in terms of of, of when they right. release that and when they do that. Right. And there's things that come up that make you feel like you're the unstable one when you try to share something that's happening and the family court professionals look at you like you are the unstable one. Mm -hmm. I've shared an example in the past. My ex-husband during a time that he was actively stalking me and there, I was sleeping with a hammer under my pillow because I was afraid for my life. Mm -hmm. And one morning I woke up mm -hmm. and our wedding videos were all on my front porch. And I knew what he was trying to do. He was trying to instill fear in me, let me know he was still around and and poke at me. But w when you call the police and tell them my ex-husband just dropped off our wedding videos, they're going to look at you and go, well, that's so nice of him, <laughs> you know, send Correct. a thank you oh, card. Yeah. And it's so much deeper and covert mm -hmm. and strategic, but very few, even I find even a lot of mental health professionals don't understand these dynamics. That this is one of the biggest reasons I say this to you all the time, yeah. John. That that one of the biggest reasons why I don't like people going to couples therapy if one partner has narcissistic personality disorder is because if that therapist doesn't understand the nuances and the complexities of this, 
that's going to be so much more traumatizing and invalidating because it's it's again it's a stage it's a platform and the person's not going to be believed because it is so unbelievable um, and then they just feel even more stuck. That's why I always recommend, nope, go to therapy for yourself with somebody who understands this because couples right. therapy, for that exact reason that you said, it's going to do the complete opposite that you intended to do. And and Absolutely. to throw in there also, I think you, I'm sure you get this too, you know, I'll constantly get comments and feedback about, you know, how could you as a psychologist say such bad, horrible things about somebody with, you know, a psychological disorder, right? Like you're contributing to the stigma. And, you know, it is the one area in mental health, and I say this to you, John, all the time, it is this one area in mental health where I'm not bashing it. It's, I'm just describing it because it is that bad. Um, right. you know, and, and, and I think people have a hard time with that because here you have these, you know, mental health providers saying they're not going to change. There's nothing you can do about this except set boundaries, understand the blueprint of narcissism because it's the same. It, it just, it follows a pattern. And once you understand that pattern, you can set boundaries and you can predict it, which is very empowering. Um, you know, but a lot of mental health providers, I think are hesitant to, to even say that because that's not what we do. We help people. But this is that one area where they're, they're not going right. to change. Period. End of story. Right. And the part that's so confusing for me is if I went into a therapist and I described my husband's alcoholism and how bad his drinking is, they wouldn't hesitate to say, go to AA. That sounds... or. Yeah, Al-Anon, you know, go go and get mm-hmm. supported Al-Anon. It sounds like he's an alcoholic. You know, why are we okay throwing those terms around? You know, it, I feel like we need more. You, you can't diagnose, obviously, but you could say this person ha- seems like they have very high narcissistic traits, you know, and help exactly. educate the person in your office. Um, it's, I, I, looking back at my journey and during my marriage, when I did end up in a therapist's office, because by after year, you know, eight, nine, I did believe what he was saying, that I was the problem. And looking back, I am so grateful and, and realized that I had aligned with a rare unicorn in the mental health world who knew what this was, who told me he's a narcissist and, and you know, and mm-hmm. it shows how naive I was back then. I went home so excited, told him, guess what? <laughs> I have a label for what's wrong with you. And I was so excited and eager for him to, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really believed he could change. Now we had a label, let's fix it. And that's, you know, but looking back, I, I'm so lucky because most people don't have that experience. Yeah, I mean, I find that, too, that, you know, when I'm working with somebody and, you know, I, you know, they give me these details and you can see what's happening and I explain this to them. It's it's the um, not even just for the label, but to for them to understand that they are not at fault, that it's not them, that you've been conditioned over years, you know, similar to brainwashing over years, you know, and so. I think when they realize that and they they learn that there is something going on that that is not them, 
that that empowerment and that um, relief, I think, is is kind of the first step in in moving forward. And, you know, I think it's necessary because people will come in and they they don't know who they are. Right. They don't know what they what their interests are. They don't they kind of are a shell of their former self. And, and so it really, I think, is the beginning of of that healing process, which is always going to be ongoing. Right. And, and not only in, in so many cases of, of people I talk to, not only have they experienced the abuse from this, their partner for all these years, but usually the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And there are often a whole family of toxic, unhealthy individuals. Right. So not only have you faced abuse from this one person, you've been made to feel like the problem from their entire family. And, and that, you know, is there are so many different layers to the, these dynamics. And I guess one of those other layers I was thinking about, too, was hearing you both kind of say this. And if I'm in front of a judge or if even I'm in front of a therapist, I mean, most of these people are supposed to, you know, like you said, help on the one side with mm -hmm. the therapy and judges with second chances. You know, like there's like, OK, mm -hmm. Yes, it sounds like this. Yeah, it may sound like that. But hey, I mean, we're talking about the man's kids here or whatever their conclusion is. Mm -hmm. And they're also used to seeing, I mean, sorry for all the professionals out there, but I mean, most lawyers are narcissists. So they hear the same things a lot of the time. I mean, you could be hearing it most of your court cases for all we know. Like, so it's they're already used to the rhythm of that. And unfortunately, like you were both describing, it fits into that showboating part or whatever they're doing in the courtroom to sound like a lawyer it sounds like they have you know their stuff together and this mind meld of what they've been doing to you for all these years is maybe this is it's kind of like in a sick way like they're being your puppet almost and they, they know what's going to trigger you in that courtroom and 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 do that so more or less do you think that's part of the mainer issues here too is the people that are making these decisions are uh, like we've been talking about i mean this is they just have no clue on how bad it can actually be. I think in, you know, like you touched on attorneys, high level of narcissism, judges, same thing. I think there's an incredibly high level of narcissism within the court system in general. They have God complexes. They're in charge of people's lives. Mm -hmm. If they aren't, you know, completely corrupt, then at a minimum, they become very calloused to these issues. And there's a tremendous amount of victim blaming within the family court system. My judge looked at me and made a comment like, you know, you chose to marry this person and have two kids with him. You can't come into my courtroom and expect me to fix your problems. And I'll tell you in a weird way, wow. I'm grateful he said that to me because it helped me. It gave me insight into what he was thinking and it allowed me to shift my direction on how I was presenting because I went in there thinking he was there to protect my kids. And so... Um, you know, my mentality had to be, if you're not going to protect my kids today, I'm going to come back again and again and again till you do, because I have to put my head on my pillow at night. But even if my, even if your judge or family court professional doesn't say that to you, like mine did, 
they're all thinking it, the majority of them, you know, they, they just become so callous to these issues. The victim blaming is one of the biggest issues in the system. Very unfortunate to hear. Very unfortunate to hear. Tina, um, can't thank you enough for, for all of this. I mean, I know Dr. Z was thrilled to have you on and I think, um, you've touched with me emotionally. So like, I, I think mm-hmm. we can certainly help, um, uh, a lot of people in my life that probably need to hear these things, and I'm just grateful for your time for that. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that feel the same way and feel like they don't have really any options and things like that. So thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, Tina, thank you so thank much. You. Um, I, I, you're brilliant, and you're helping so many people, and you know your kiddos are extremely lucky to have you. Um, and I think the work that you do is just... Um, yeah, it's it's helped, you know, like I said, it's helped my 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 friends, it's helped, you know, the people that I work with um and you know, keep 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 doing it because you're doing amazing things. So, thank you and thank you for spending your 11th you. anniversary of One Mom's Battle with us. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm humbled and grateful for your time and and um to help talk about this very important issue. So thank you. And Tina, just so uh, uh, we can uh, obviously keep the discussion going after the uh, show, where can everyone find you and where can we get some hands on all the great materials you're talking about? Here? OneMomsBattle.com is our main website. All of my books, Divorcing a Narcissist, are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And then I also run a coach training program where I teach others to do what I've been doing for all these years and go into the courtroom as, you know, high conflict divorce coaches and advocates. Um, So that's the high conflict divorce coach certification program. Awesome. So great that you're doing that. Fantastic. Thanks again, Tina. Thank you, Tina. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. 